There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried, and it was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole, and he was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Love that. Happy Resurrection Day to everybody. Good to see you. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in the Old Testament book of Isaiah today. Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. If you're joining us for the first time, we have over the last three weeks, today we'll conclude it, being in a series uh, looking at Jesus as the man of sorrows. And that's a title that we take from uh, this Old Testament book of Isaiah, particularly chapter 53. One of the verses has that, that very line, that he is a man of sorrows. And in that, Isaiah does something very unique. He portrays this man, a, a servant, the Lord's surf, servant, who actually is someone who suffers. And we learn in the New Testament, this is a portrayal of, of Jesus and what Jesus does, particularly as Jesus during Holy Week uh, suffers and goes to the cross and dies in our place for our sins. So we're going to be looking at that as our Easter sermon today, uh, Isaiah 53. If you don't have a Bible, then underneath the center, center column of seats are a couple Bibles stacked on top of each other. I welcome you to grab that and use it as we're working through the scriptures. Uh, I did not take the time to look at the page number, but it's going to be like in the very beginning of it. Uh, yeah. What is it? There it is. You win the prize. I knew. 396 is the page number. We're going to be reading all of chapter 53 together. And it seems like a lot of words. It actually is, but this is poetry. And so it's not, it's really not that many. Uh, and if you want, you can cheat and read on the screen along with me. Let's read together. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. 
by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul shall make an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for uh, a new day. It's a, it's a special day in that you have caused the sun to rise. We recognize that when you do that, uh, it's not a given. You are bringing down for us new mercies and grace for today. And so we confess we need it and we thank you for it. Thank you for the gathering of your church, for the timeless scriptures that you uh, give to us to Tell us who you are and offer us the opportunity to respond. And so today, Lord, as we open your scriptures, I pray that uh, you would help us to, to see these words as poetic as they are, as clearly as, as we can, that we would see Jesus in them rightly as you intended for us, that we would hear your gospel and that we would hear it not just for um, those people out there, but we would hear it for our own selves and our own hearts, and that in the hearing of your word, that you would change us to be more like you. And I pray that in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. So these words before us in Isaiah are significant in that because, I mean, nowhere in the Old Testament does the gospel of Jesus Christ shine more clearly than it does in in Isaiah, Isaiah 53 to be exact. 700 years before Jesus would uh, condescend from eternity to step on to the earth, God uh, saw fit to give these words to Isaiah. We don't know if he heard them in his ears or if he saw them written down and he just wrote it down as he was seeing it. But somehow Isaiah, with with the eyes of prophecy, was able to capture much of what God had given as the will of of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, to, to live through uh, in his life on the earth, particularly as he would go to the cross. And the, the very thing that the prophet is able to see is the saving work that Jesus does, how he suffers in our place for our sin. And this really is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the work that God has caused Christ to do. It's the reason we celebrate on Easter, isn't it? It's the beautiful revelation of the gospel that God justifies the ungodly. Think about that. He declares guilty people innocent. He treats bad people as if they were good people. And oh, by the way, I hate to tell you, we are those bad people. In the New Testament, we learn that he does that through the person of Jesus and his work on the cross. And so in the gospel, Jesus dies on the cross for sinners so that we can be saved. And the Bible tells us that he was raised from the dead in order that he might 
give us newness of life. And that deserves an amen. amen. And that's what makes this passage so beautiful. When we read Isaiah, we are literally going back in time and hearing the story of salvation in detail 700 years before Jesus even lived it out on the earth. And so you have not only the revelation of what God has done, you have the validation of God's truth. And I think God does that to boost the, our own confidence in our own salvation. I mean, I absolutely love that. And that really is my hope for myself and for you for this Easter. You know, we can, for those of you who've been in the church for a while, for those of you who've been coming to church for a little bit, I mean, we know the Easter story, right? I mean, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you anything that you have not heard before. But sometimes in the familiarity of the familiar, we can forget the significance of it, not just for those people out there, but for our own selves. And so today I'm hoping that as we rehearse what has become familiar, that many of us, as we hear again the great substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross, as he takes away our condemnation and gives us his righteousness, as we celebrate the resurrection that really all of us would be strengthened in our confidence in our own salvation, that a hallelujah would come out you know, from the inside, that we would know the story of Jesus is absolutely not a myth, that it's a historical fact, but also that God put it in Scripture uh, 700 years uh, beforehand so that we would know without a doubt in detail that it absolutely did happen. And so we got a famous passage before us, and these are a lot of words, and so I'm not trying to do it justice in terms of explaining every single word and every single line. That's not our purpose here on Easter, but I do want you to be encouraged by what you see in our text. Isaiah is, uh, is, is portraying the success, the sufferings, and the significance of the servant of the Lord. Theologians call this a song, and they call it a song because this is poetry. It's poetic language, and some of it you're going to understand very easily, and others of it is, is it's, it's uh, surrounded by colorful language, and so it may take a little bit of interpretation. But what, this is what Isaiah is, is doing. He's giving us five paragraphs, three verses each, and in them, he's sort of bringing out uh, a different aspect of who he calls a servant of the Lord. In the New Testament, we find out this servant is none other than Jesus. And so here's basically an outline of what we're going to, to discover in Isaiah's song. Firstly, Isaiah reveals that the servant was repulsive, but he would be redemptive. We find that the servant lived in rejection, and we are the ones who rejected him. We find that uh, we'll learn that the servant was our sin bearer. This will be the climax of of what Isaiah will tell us about Jesus. He died in innocence and silence. And lastly, he'll be crushed, but ultimately he would be victorious. And those are the major stanzas, the paragraphs that Isaiah will present to us. And then there's one other thing that I want you to, to keep in the backs of your mind as we're going through this prophecy. There's a couple of questions, I think, that stand out, that stand out uh, very significantly in Isaiah's writing and that we would do well to pay attention to as we're coming through it, especially if you're here today, you're not a Christian, you're peering into Christianity, you're just curious about it. Firstly, how can God's promises uh, come true for guilty people? Said differently, if, if I am a part of those guilty people, if I am an ungodly person, how does God justify me? Secondly, how can people 
who deserve God's wrath and instead gain his glory? And thirdly, but perhaps more, more, most importantly, how can God love people? How, why would God love people like us? So those other questions that I think Isaiah answers uh, in the stanzas of our text in his song. And the first stanza reveals that the servant was repulsive. He was appalling, yet he was redemptive. I'm going to actually back up and go into chapter 52, looking at verses 13 through 15. This is where the song actually uh, starts. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not uh, have not heard. They understand. So what this is what Isaiah is doing. He actually is bookending his song with with good news, flowery words, but he really is telling us the, the, the end from the beginning of his song. And he's describing the servant of the Lord, but this servant is undoubtedly Jesus. And so in those uncertain terms, he's telling us Jesus' mission into the world was an absolute success. He says, my servant will act wisely. He had that, that the, the servant of the Lord had some wisdom as to how he went about the thing that he was supposed to do, particularly, he says, Jesus knew what he was getting into. He knew what he had to do to accomplish that for which God sent him from eternity to the earth. He was not mistaken on what he was supposed to do. He didn't happen upon it. He knew what it was. And oh, by the way, it worked. How do we know it worked? Jesus got up. He got up out of the grave. Jesus rose from the grave. The Bible tells us that he was lifted up at the right hand of God, the Father, and that he now reigns on high with all power and authority in his hands. That's what he's saying right here. And so Jesus is, is not to be pitied. We're going to hear, you know, in, a, in the very next verse, he's going to start talking about the sorrows of Jesus, of how he suffered but here, Isaiah at the beginning is saying, you know what? Jesus went through some stuff, but you don't have to be sorrowful for Jesus. Why? Because this, the good news is going to be uh, uh, in, the, in the intermediate. You're going to have some bad news, but we're going to come back to the good news for his life. He's not to be pitied. He's to be worshipped. And, and that, for that reason, Isaiah doesn't linger here. He doesn't linger in the beginning on the good news of what Jesus has done. He doesn't linger on his exaltation, but he lingers, in fact, on his suffering. Look at verse 14. Isaiah writes, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of, of mankind. Isaiah is not intent to tell us what Jesus looks like. In fact, the Bible is absolutely silent in terms of what Jesus looked like for fear that we would have statues and paintings and like murals of all sorts of what, of what uh, you know, the God man looks like. The, the Bible, God himself doesn't want us to idolize Jesus like that. Think of the Ten Commandments. Don't, don't make any idols of, of things that kind of sort of look like me. Isaiah is not trying to get us to, to know what Jesus looked like. Rather, he's focusing on the idea of his humiliation. Here's, here's what Jesus' pain and his anguish and his suffering looked like, felt like for him. And he does that in, in very... Um, exact language. Isaiah is foretelling for us 
what we learn in the Gospels of those dark hours that Jesus spent on the cross. And so the picture that he's painting and the words that he's giving us is that it was, I mean, it's an ugly picture. It's an appalling thing that happens to Jesus. If we, if we saw this painting, it would look downright ugly. It would be repulsive. Crucifixion was one of the most painful methods of public execution uh, in the first century. The Romans weren't the only ones that did it. Many nations during that time uh, had exacted it and did it well, typically for for victims, for uh, criminals. And so the victim was placed on a wooden cross, nails, undoubtedly not the, the, the iron slick nails that would have gone easily through a person's hand. They would have been wooden nails the size of ones that we would see on a, on a railroad track. And those nails were driven into the wrist and the ankles of a victim. And then the cross would be lifted up and jarred into the ground. And so that person on the cross, his flesh crucified, would be racking, and his body would be in excruciating pain. And the misnomer is that it would be that pain that would kill the person. That's not what killed them. It would be the lack of breath. They wouldn't be able to breathe. And so they would have to, to, to lift up through those nail-impaired um, knee uh, ankles to even catch a breath as they're hanging on the cross. And so... Jesus and victims like him who died by crucifixion died not of the pain of the cross, but of asphyxiation, not being able to breathe. Historians tell us that crucifixion was such a horrid sight that even the Roman soldiers who experienced it, I mean, they got drunk so they could numb the pain of themselves watching someone die like this. And so when you think about the words that Isaiah is using to, to show us how Jesus suffered, how this the servant of the Lord suffered, this suffering servant that's depicted here. Think about the fact that he endured that for six hours, all that anguish for six whole hours. I think in the reality of our day, uh, we can read the words of, you know, of how someone was crucified, but we have no idea of the amount of anguish, of pure, direct persecution that a person that was crucified had to go through. I mean, I think we unconsciously glamorized the cross. We aren't doing it on purpose. This is a part of our culture. We wear emblems of crosses on our uh, on T-shirts to make it. You know, it's just stylish. We put earrings on or necklaces on as jewelry that might depict that we are a Christian. But what it, what what Isaiah is alluding to us here is that none of these things that we do in our current day carry the, um, the real story of the crucifixion. There's a, a, an American sociologist by the name of Robert Bella, and he's known for his work related to the sociology of religion. And in particular, he once wrote about the religious eclecticism he found in the studies of popular beliefs called Sheilaism. That's a, an interesting word. Sheilaism is a religion that he made up. He named it after a woman that he had interviewed, actually a collection of people that he called Sheila. Sheilaism, and what's interesting about the interview that he did with Sheila and Sheilaism is that he found that those he interviewed held unrelated and self-contradictory beliefs about God and religion. And what Bella brings out through his interview is that most of us hold on to many of our religious views because we simply like them. And so, all right, so I'll take a little bit of that religion because that sounds good. I don't like that God is, is punishing even 
the son of God on a cross, because that sounds like just cosmic father abuse. So I'm not going to take that part. But I like the part about God being love. That's that's really how many of us treat religion. We pick it apart. We like some things and we toss some things away based upon not historical evidence, not because of the facts that the Bible gives us, not even about what we feel convicted about. It's things that we like and dislike. And sometimes our religions are pieced together like that. Perhaps you today are here and your faith has been pieced together. You like some things, you don't like other things. And so I would ask you, I mean, think about it. If you had the opportunity to construct your own religion, what would it be like? Particularly, what would your hero look like? What would your savior, the the chief teacher, the ruler of that religion look like? Very likely, none of us in this room, even those of us who are of faith, would choose a savior that looked like the servant in this song, the marred, crucified, beaten, appalling, repulsive servant that Isaiah is painting for us. Yet this is how Christ serves us. He was repulsive, but he was also redemptive. And that's where Isaiah goes next in our text. Verse 15, he says, he's telling us that in the paradox of this grossly marred servant, the extreme, um, the extreme suffering that he goes through gives him the extreme power to cleanse. Look at this, the word that he uses. He says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Isaiah is thinking of an Israelite priest, particularly on the Day of Atonement, and the duty they had to, to take an unblemished animal, to sacrifice that animal, to take its parts, and to put them on an altar and have um, basically a cookout, right? And that animal was used uh, to... Um, to give a, a worship incense to God. The Bible uses the, 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 the phraseology that, um, that the aroma of these sacrificed animals goes up to God as a pleasing aroma to him. It's a form of worship. But most importantly, the blood from these unblemished animals would be used, would be captured from the animal, drained from them, and then sprinkled on uh, the people themselves, the priest would sprinkle some on his own self to cleanse himself, and then he would go into the, the, the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God was, and he would sprinkle some on the mercy seat. And so what this picture that Isaiah is giving us is, is that Jesus does this for us. He's foretelling um, the, the, the very work that Jesus would do to save us, to atone for our sin, that Jesus Christ is both the sacrifice. He is that one that God has given for his body to be used and his blood to be spilled to atone for our sins. That Jesus, as the lamb who God would use to atone for us, that his blood is pure enough to cleanse not just our own individual sins, but as the text says, the sins of many nations. That Jesus touches us all, the unwashed and the unclean, by his word and by spirit, by his person, by his word, by his body, and by his blood, making us fit for God. Here's the second paragraph in Isaiah's song. He says, a servant lived in rejection. Note verse 3. I've skipped over to chapter 53 now. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as, as, uh, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And so Isaiah tells us that the servant was sent to a people 
that couldn't even understand him. And so what do they do? They, they dismiss him. They, they reject him. And it's not that they didn't necessarily see the benefit of, 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 of what he had done. It was just a benefit that they weren't willing to submit themselves to at the time. And so they both uh, ignore his obvious witness and they reject him. And he tells us why in verse 2. Isaiah is preventing, uh, presenting two metaphors. Firstly, he says they, they grew up, he grew up like a young plant. Think of a young plant on the ground called as a suckling. You step on it, you're going you're to ruin it. You could easily pluck it up and take, I mean, just ruin its life by removing it from the, 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 the base of the plant. So it's, it's delicate, okay? And then he uses another metaphor. He says he was like a root out of the dry ground. Again, a root that's not embedded in the ground can be easily taken and just snapped off, right? And so really he's giving us the picture of insignificance. And Isaiah is telling us that by human standards, there's nothing impressive about Jesus at all. In a similar way, the Gospels would inform us that, um, that Jesus had very humble beginnings. Think of Jesus uh, condescending on the earth and then being born through the Virgin Mary. I mean, how was he born? He was born as a baby in a manger, lay in a, sta- a stable, right? And so Jesus is born amongst the muck and the dung of, of animals, a very humble beginning for the one who would eventually come to save us and become our king. As Jesus grew up, even his family sort of misjudged him. There's one incident in the, in the Gospel of Mark where his brothers um, made fun of him. His brothers mocked him. His family misjudged him. Actually, Mark's Gospel would say they thought he was crazy. Jesus uh, has an encounter with the woman uh, at the well in John 4, and this woman is, is a, a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans don't mix, and so the, uh, the interaction with Jesus is sort of an, inter- an interesting kind of a meetup. And as she's talking about the Jewish religion as a Samaritan and mentioning to Jesus about the Messiah that they think is coming, the woman is telling him about himself and has no idea of who she's talking about. And then we get to Jesus' miracles. Think of all the miracles that Jesus did and how spectacular they were. And yet, as spectacular as Jesus' miracles were, I think if you look at them on the whole, they, they, didn't, they didn't have the effect that they should have had on the people that actually witnessed them. We see this in John's gospel. The people followed Jesus and he did all these miracles and then they kept asking him, so who are you and why are you saying these things? And can you make some more bread so that we can eat and be, be, our tummies can be filled? And so these miracles didn't have the widespread impact that they should have had. And lastly, but not least, and this is just, these are examples from scripture, of course. John the Baptist, who the Bible says was the greatest of prophets that the world will ever know. What did John do? He second-guessed as to who Jesus was. So what's my point? I, I think at least in the ways that, that, would pe- that people like us would count, Jesus had nothing about him to which we would be attracted to him. Just like in the people of his day, didn't know who he was or think much about him, I think we would be that in that same predicament had Jesus I mean, walked among us right now. And so as Isaiah rightly says, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed 
him not. And the we folks is us. It's people like you and me. And I think the point here is that none of us should think that if we had been eyewitnesses of Jesus as he walked the earth, that we would have admired him. And I think that had to be so. Uh, a, con- a contemporary mentor of mine, I call him a friend, Ray Ortland, um, in his commentary says this. He says, Jesus had to become like us for us to become like him. Surely if we had been with Jesus, every one of us would have been, every one of us would have despised and rejected him and turned away to follow the other really cool people. Who were the other really cool people in the Bible days? Barabbas, Caiaphas, the high priest, or perhaps even Pilate, depending on our politics or uh, our mood at the moment. I think that's who we are. We are more superficial than we realize we are. We look on the surface of things. We judge by mere appearances. Jesus, however, wasn't trying to impress us. And because Jesus didn't come trying to impress us, what did we do? We dismissed him. We, we see the obvious benefit of his ministry, but sometimes I mean, it, it's not what we want. And so like the people of old, we reject him. Here's the third stanza of Isaiah's song. The servant was our sin bearer. This, this third stanza is where we find the longest meditation in, in all of Scripture, in the whole Bible, on how God deals with our sin. And this is what we find. The language of the Bible uses that there is a, a deserved penalty to be paid for sin and that someone paid it for us. Isaiah calls him the servant of the Lord. The New Testament will call him Jesus. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, spitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and laid, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. One of the earliest post-New Testament um, Christian expressions of Christ's atonement, the way that he comes and uh, appeases the wrath of God for our sin, comes from the, uh, the, the, one of the first popes. That's not a bad thing. Remember, the, the whole church was Catholic uh, at the beginning. Uh, Pope Clement of Rome, uh, he coincidentally is the, the, the first of the church fathers. And here's what uh, Pope Clement of Rome says. Because of the love he had for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in accordance with God's will, gave his blood for us and his flesh for our flesh and his life for our life. And I think that's what we're reading uh, in Isaiah's writing. And so, I mean, this, this third stanza This is important for us because this is the climax of of the song that Isaiah is giving us. And perhaps you've seen the pattern. Here's the story that Isaiah is writing. First stanza, you have this repulsive servant who comes with a bona fide benefit to us. And um, we end up rejecting him. Stanza two, We, we see the experiences that he's had and... We ourselves are a part of his affliction. And then in this third stanza, I mean, there's a surprising turn of events. In these verses, we have really one of the answers to the questions I asked you at the beginning. I said, keep in the back of your mind. And really, it's the question that the whole Old Old Testament is asking and answering. is how can a holy God 
forgive sinners? How does mercy and justice meet in the middle? How does a righteous God justify ungodly people? And the answer that Isaiah gives us is, is this servant here in this stanza. He dies in our place for our sin. He becomes our sin bearer. It's, it's, it's hard not to read in Isaiah's words that he really is saying that at the cross, were a bunch of people and we were among them because we were. That's what Isaiah is, is saying, saying. In no uncertain terms, Isaiah is saying it was our sin and our guilt that required Jesus to die. Look at verse 5 again. Actually, read this out loud with me. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Notice the number of times the word our is used. Isaiah is including us with those who put the hurt on Jesus. There is a, you've heard of Rembrandt. Rembrandt famously painted a lot of paintings, but one of the famous paintings that he's famous for is a, a painting by the title of uh, the raising of the cross. And what's unique about the picture that he painted is that amongst those who are at the foot of the cross, looking up at the crucifixion at Jesus, he painted himself in the picture. And he's saying, he's raising his hand and saying, you know what? I confess I was there. It's as if I myself put nails in Jesus' hands and in his, his ankles. And I think with that, this is the very heart of of our message here. I mean, this is central and climatic of the story of the servant of the Lord, but it's also climatic of the story of Jesus because this is the, this is the heart of the gospel. Among other things, Jesus is this man of sorrows. But here's the thing, folks. The sorrows that Jesus experienced and leave, lived through in his life, they weren't his own. They were ours. Jesus was sorrowful for, for our sorrow. Jesus is the man of sorrows. And so in Jesus, God has done really the unthinkable. He's substituted himself, Jesus', uh, Jesus righteousness for our sin. And we get the better part of the deal, don't we? God has shifted the blame from us to Jesus so that he dies for guilty people. God is pointing the finger not on us, but on Jesus. And Isaiah says it rightly in verse 6. He has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I think what this highlights for us is, is really two things. Firstly, it highlights the pervasiveness of our sin. Our sin has infiltrated the, the humanity, and through and through it's made us who we are today. You know, I, I know all of us, we like to think we're good people, right? I mean, he's a good man, she's a good woman. We compare ourselves to other people. We like to think that the bad in us is not as bad as the, the, the horribleness in the person beside us. I mean, sometimes we do that. We vilify someone else so that we feel good about ourselves. And, they, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying we don't all do that. But here's the thing. I think when we take note of who we are in the light of what Jesus does on the cross, when we take note of who we are in light of how Scripture paints the perfection that God requires of us as his people, I mean, none of us can stand on our own. We need some help. And then, I mean, under those circumstances, it's easy to understand how sin has come in like this nasty disease 
and infiltrated all of us. The narrative of the Bible says that God, God created this beautiful world and he put man in the center of it. And he rose up man that we might wear the, the, the beauty and the glory of his image as his vice reaches on the planet. He gave us the right to subdue everything under our feet on his behalf and that we would rule over not just the planet, the nation, I mean, just all of it. We would do that. And then sin, of course, ensues. And that sin, through the disobedience of the first two people on the planet, comes to all of us. And it has been pervasive in us ever since. And so whereas we're supposed to uh, just be this glorious image of God, sin has bruised and marred us all. It's caused us to be sick and broken. It's caused our consciousness to be ruined, our understanding to be faulty, and our wills to be made weak. And that's for all of us. And even if you are here today and you are one that confesses Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, you too, sir or ma'am, still have to deal with sin of pride and lust and ambition and all those things that we read and that we know about that make us not so good people. And we'll deal with those sinful things until we die and we are in Jesus' presence forever. That's just what sin does. But here's what God does. But God, right? Instead of punishing us, punishing us for our sin out of love, and here's the second highlight, God charges our sin to a substitute. And so Isaiah says, it's the servant of the Lord. But we know, who's that substitute? It's Jesus. And folks, there's no greater picture of love than what's being painted here in these words. And that's the beauty of the gospel for us. And substitution is the very essence of love. Y'all ever seen Hunger Games? All right, maybe you read the book. I'm not advocating that you should go out and read or even look at the movie Hunger Games. But I've actually read the books. Me and my kids were uh, having a contest to see who could read them fast. My wife won. I think David came in second. And so we're reading and, and watching the movie um, Hunger Games, particularly the first book, the first movie. So there's the, the, if you haven't seen this, then I mean, you're not gonna even get the example, sorry. Go, go read. I'm not advocating it. All right. Because there's killing. There's, it's like killing in it. All right. So, but it's entertaining. Um, and so there's this first reaping. It's, uh, it's, it's where the, the cities, the districts come together and someone's going to be chosen to go into the games and go against other districts. And so um, the main character, Katniss Everdeen, her sister has been chosen, almost like picking a uh, a ball out of a uh, uh, out of a jar, and her sister's only like eleven or twelve years old. And the main character, Katniss Everdeen, decides to do the unthinkable. She goes, she volunteers herself in place of her sister, knowing that if you were the person chosen to go into the games, the Hunger Games, what you were doing was volunteering for your death because most people did not survive the games. They could only be one victor. And so that, that is a picture that we're getting of what Jesus does for us. And of course, I am in no way comparing the, the idiocy of the Hunger Games to to what Jesus does on the cross, but it's this idea of substitute, of someone being willing to take my place, knowing that that place is a place of death. And that's what Jesus rightfully does 
for us. I've been meditating on this song that Matt Redman had, um, wrote all week, and I, we don't have time for us to sing it, but I'm going to give you a few words of it real quick, um, because this, this is it's the essence of what we celebrate on Easter. He says, who is love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise. He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy float a vast and gracious tide. Listen to this chorus. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. And then this bridge is beautiful. No love is higher. No love is wider. No love is deeper. No love is truer. No love is higher. No love is wider. No love is like your love, O Lord. That's the love that our God has for us, folks. That's the love that our God has for you. And he was willing to substitute himself for your sin. That I mean, you can't get any more lovely than that. That's what our God does for us. Isaiah says, God has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. You know what? That deserves a response from all of us. But particularly if you're here today, you're struggling with your faith. You're not a Christian. You need to, um, you, I'm just trying to figure out what to do. I would say, you wrestle with these words. Now, these are poetic words, and you might need some help understanding them, but here's what these words are saying. It's saying you've sinned and you're responsible to God for every sin you have committed and that you ever will commit. But here's the good news of that. Someone has suffered your sin and paid the penalty for them if you would simply trust that what he's done is for you and that you can receive redemption through what he's done. That's the gospel. Here's the fourth stanza that Isaiah sings in his song, The Servant Died in Innocence. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened it not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away and asked for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they met they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is the second reference to sheep or lambs in our text. In the previous verse, verse 6, Isaiah suggests that sheep were foolish and willful creatures, and he's liking that to us in the way that we so spiritually will leave the Lord on a whim if he isn't doing what we need at our beck and call. We'll easily stray from the Lord. Here in verse 7, he's speaking to vulnerability and sacrifice. And he's thinking of this, uh, I mean, as as sheep uh, that were unblemished in the Old Testament days, as the Israelite priest was bringing a a lamb to God to be slaughtered, so has um, Jesus done that same thing for us on the cross. He's likening these words as if they were Jesus. But here's the overarching focus, at least on this stanza here um, that we're reading is that Jesus was not forced into dying on the cross for us. I mean, he didn't have anybody pulling him against his will. He did it willingly. 
Jesus is not the victim. He's not forced into all these events. John's gospel says it like this. He willingly laid down his life. Though Jesus was a lamb, like a lamb led to slaughter, he wasn't overpowered. The cross wasn't something that that he fought against. Think about what he did in the Garden garden of Gethsemane. He sees this mob of people coming, Judas leading them. He allowed Jesus to kiss him. He allowed the soldiers there to to bind him with chains and take him to to be uh, imprisoned. Think about him before the, the, the trials, before the religious leaders, and before Caiaphas the priest, and even before Pilate. It says he was silent. He said not a word. He did not even take the opportunity to defend himself, although he could have. Surely he didn't deserve the abuse that he received, and yet he did it. Here's the other thing to note here, verses 8 and 9, is how thoughtlessly um, they were going to dispose of his body. This is, this is talking about his death, and it's saying that they were just going to discard it. If it hadn't been for Joseph of Arimathea that came and put him in uh, an unused tomb among the rich. Jesus would have been just tossed out on a dung heap and, and burned or allowed to rot. Yet, as Isaiah says, prophetically, um, so that the special nature of his death would be known, instead of being, um, instead of being buried among those who were martyred and saints, what did they do? They buried him among the wicked and the rich. And in the providence of God, these very words are the words that we read in the book of Acts. You ever read the book of Acts chapter 8, where the Ethiopian eunuch is, is, uh, is with uh, Philip the deacon? So th- this, this eunuch, he's a dignitary for Candace, uh, an Ethiopian queen. He happens to be in Jerusalem. He's worshiping, and uh, he's in his carriage. He's reading a scroll of Isaiah. He's reading the very words that we see here in verse 7 and 8, and God sends Philip, boop, just like shows up, miracle, right? And Philip walks up to him because the Spirit of God tells him to do that, and he asks the Ethiopian, what are you reading? And the Ethiopian says, well, I'm reading the words of Isaiah, but who can understand it? What is he talking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And the Bible says that Philip opened the scriptures for him to understand exactly what was happening. And it happened to be these words here that Isaiah is articulating about the death of Jesus. And and here's what I love about this encounter in Acts chapter 8. It's the response of the the Ethiopian eunuch. Look at what he says. He says, let me go to And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And look at verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down in the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Here's what's happening here. The eunuch is recognizing, I mean, through the the words of the prophet, he's recognizing his own sin. He's recognizing what God has done and what his response should be, and he is responding with the servant of the Lord right there with him. Could it be perhaps today that you, after hearing Isaiah and his words, would see the Savior who who was made repulsive for you, who died in your place for your sin, and that you would identify yourself as a follower of Jesus and someday might want to actually, I mean, identify with him even more by getting baptized. That's what's being offered here. Here's the last stanza. It says, the servant was crushed, but was victorious. We're going to get through these rapidly because the guys in the back are saying, stop, stop talking. 
Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for his transgressors. Isaiah started with good news. He's ending with good news, and he had, we have some bad news to get through in the middle. This is speaking of the resurrection. I and mean, this is flowery, poetic words, but he's, he's foretelling for us the resurrection. Specifically, look at verse 13. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This is corresponding with, so the, the way that Isaiah is ending is corresponding with what we've read in chapter 52, verse Verse 13, at the beginning, Paul says something very similar in Philippians 2, verse 6 through 11, doesn't he? What does he say? He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. But taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Isaiah is saying Jesus' death was more than just a human plot. It was divine Strategy. God meant for it to happen. Paul says in Romans 3, Jesus was doing the will of the Lord. And perhaps one of the mysteries of the cross is that the very hands that Jesus had come to save would be the hands that would torture him. Isn't that a, a mystery that God would choose to have it go down like that? Here's another mystery of the cross that Jesus' death could actually produce life in us. Yeah, that's what Isaiah means when he says, he shall see his offspring. Who's the offspring? It's people like you and me. It's us. It's those who benefit from his death when he justifies us. When you recognize your sin, when you recognize what God has, has done, and you cry, uncle, say, Lord, I got it. I understand the heinousness of my sin. They put you on the cross. I receive your forgiveness, and I willingly come to you. That's what's being offered here as we close this out. And the picture that this ancient text ends on is one of satisfaction. He uses that word, the satisfaction of Jesus that he has as he stands back and he looks at all that God has done, all that he's come through. And I can't help but imagine, I don't know if it goes down like this, but I can just see it happening. Jesus is on the cross. He's in excruciating pain. He sees a thief to his left, a thief to his right that don't deserve his grace nor his mercy, but he extends it to one. The other is destined to hell because he decides he doesn't need it. And then as Jesus is choosing to give up his last breath, he's going to say it is finished. But guess what? Before he does that, he looks out and he says, Father, was it worth it? And then he smiles. And then Isaiah captures the words in verse 11. And look what Isaiah says. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. I think that's Isaiah embellishing what Jesus perhaps sensed at some moment on the cross. And he just gets this overwhelming joy that he has suffered for naught. 
that his suffering is going to lead to not only his satisfaction, but the salvation of all those that God is calling to himself. But it's also the promise of reward. It's a reward here. And it's not that Jesus needs a reward from God to die in our place for our sin, but he gets one. And that's the note that this, this song ends on. Verse 12, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Again, very poetic language here. But the summary is, because the servant bore the sin of many, God would reward him. He'll divide the spoil. What does that sound like? We've gone to the camp, and we've taken, we've t- taken. We've taken everything that was his, and we're going to get the stuff that was ours. Right? That's, that's victorious language there. Jesus has won the victory. The reward is his. This is presuming the resurrection, folks, that Jesus would be an atoning, penal substitute for people whose sins he bore. In other words, John the Baptist had it right. He's the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Are you one of those? Are you one to whom Jesus has Born your suffering and die on the cross. Here's the good news for us on Easter. There is good news on Easter, right? Jesus isn't suffering anymore. What does the Bible say about Jesus? That he sits on high at the right hand of God and he is there enjoying for himself um, a risen and exalted posture at God's right hand. He's looking down on us and he's smiling because we are his very reward. And he's enjoying the satisfaction, the sheer pleasure, knowing that he made many ungodly people to be counted righteous. And so what do you do with that except respond? We all have to respond. And so if you're a Christian, here's the cool thing about responding to Jesus. You know, we still sin. but We have the privilege of bringing our sin to Jesus. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to purify us from our unrighteousness. But if you're uh, uh, not a Christian here, you're struggling with Christianity, you're just trying to figure it out, you, you have to actually have to respond as well. You know, you could respond one way and absolutely say, you know what, I mean, do we know this is true? I mean, how do we know these, these words of Isaiah that he intended for this to be a picture of Jesus and all? I mean, how do we even know? Here's, here's what one person said. They said, you don't have to understand all the intricacies of how this works in order to be healed and forgiven. You don't have to do that any more than you like, like, I'm going to take my iPhone and turn it on. I don't know how this thing works. I just know when I pick it up and look at it, it opens up. Sometimes faith is like that. You just got to trust that if you you do a little bit, God's going to meet you halfway. But you do have to respond. And perhaps you can respond like this, that you repent and believe the gospel. Repent means to turn. Turn from what you have formerly believed, formerly thought, formerly put your hope in, and simply uh, believe what God has said about himself and know that you have a response. And the response that we should all have is that we revere this man of sorrows, Jesus Christ, who was crucified for sinners and then received his grace with the empty hands of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. The psalmist said that, woe is man that you be mindful of him. Lord, that, those are our words that we echo today. Who are we that you would think much of us, that you would give up your only son to, um, to live for us in ways that we can't, to die for us in ways that we should? There is love in that.
Thank you for that. So I pray, God, that your people here today who are assembled on Easter would sense your love for them by the picture of you dying on the cross, the, the beating that you bore, the, the death that you died, the blood that you spilled, and that, Lord, we would confess our sin, that we would come willingly running to you for salvation, the salvation that you offer for those who, uh, who are willing to take it. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.